morning. Wow, you guys are on it today. I like it. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Like 50% is on it now. But well, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, some of you probably know this. We're spending the summer teaching through spiritual disciplines here at the Fold. And we've gone, we're going through, if I remember right, six total spiritual disciplines, and we're spending two weeks on each one. So last week, Heath led us through a practice of the personal spiritual discipline of prayer by guiding us through abiding prayer. He guided us through an extended practice. It's a practice that you can do in 10 minutes or that you can do in an hour, but it's a way of encountering the Holy Spirit through Scripture. Today... We're talking about scripture as a corporate spiritual discipline. How does scripture form us as a community? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 4. Are you ready? Perfect. All right. Let's jump in. And we're going to read a pretty big chunk of scripture today, so buckle up. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The lo- love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land." Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors." The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence with us in worship. We thank you for your word. God, I ask that over the next few minutes, whatever is from me, it's just my ideas or my opinions, it would be revealed so it can be rejected. But what is from you and faithful to you would echo in our hearts. The name of Jesus is the name that matters today. So let it be the name that echoes in our minds. We love you. 
Amen. Anybody here know what the second law of thermodynamics is? Nice, nice. We got one. All right, awesome. Two, we got two. Okay, cool. Um, Three. Three, we have three people. I had to look it up, full disclosure. Um, my mind is not as much of a steel trap of eighth grade science as I thought it was. I had to look it up. Um, the, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, in a very simplified form, states that the amount of entropy in a system is almost always increasing and never decreasing. The amount of entropy in a system, so the amount of entropy in the world, in the closed system of the universe, is always increasing. Entropy is basically a science word for chaos. So what that means is the world is progressively getting more chaotic. Most of you are like, yeah, I can see that. Um, The world is moving towards chaos. Things do not naturally get more ordered and regulated. Things left to their own devices without some sort of intervention tend towards entropy and disorder and chaos. There's a really easy way to notice this that I was thinking about this week. Have you ever noticed maybe in your neighborhood or maybe on your way to work a house that's been sitting empty for a while? What happens to a house that's sitting empty for a while? It gets nicer. It dilapidates, right? It gets worse over time. Same thing happens with a car. If you've got a car you're not using, we've got a car that we're trying to sell right now, so we haven't been driving it, but we have to go out and turn on the engine and drive it around a little bit just to keep it going because it's actually better for the car to have the wear and tear of being driven to work every day than it is for it to sit on its own. Same thing is true of a house. And I don't, that doesn't really make sense to me because in our house, we have a seven-year-old, two dogs, a cat, a hamster, and if you include the yard, we have seven chickens and three ducks. That is too many animals, I'm aware of that. It's way too many. But I have seen the havoc that those animals, including the child, wreak on everything that they touch. And we break things and make them dirty like it's our primary hobby. One of our dogs, dug through a couch cushion, cushion, like dug, burrowed into a couch cushion. We have scratch marks on the door frame because the cat climbs the walls. Like, this is why I don't like cats for the record. It has a tactical advantage now. It has the high ground in the house. We, we, are, we are wreaking havoc on this home just by existing in it. But for some reason, it's actually better for the house and for the longevity of the house for us to just be there living our lives. Not necessarily fixing anything, not like taking great care of things, but it's better for the longevity of the house for us to stay there and to keep living our lives, chaos and all. Because left to its own device, things move towards greater entropy. Things move towards chaos. Things do not naturally move towards order and structure and health. Now, the same thing that's true of the world around us, it's true of a house, it's true of a car, it's true of a human body. Our bodies survive better when they are worked, when we do things with wear and tear of everyday life, and they actually get unhealthy when they just sit around. We know this. It's true of our physical reality. It's also true of our spiritual reality. Humans do not naturally move towards health and order. We are never going to accidentally wind up eating kale and doing yoga and meditating on scripture. That just doesn't happen naturally. Left to our own devices, we always wind up with like Twinkies and video games and internet pornography. That's the natural progression of the human experience. We move towards entropy when left to our own devices. That's 
why you can probably see that we're spending the summer talking about spiritual disciplines. Because anything left on its own without some sort of intention or action or discipline added to it moved towards entropy. That's why for as long as there have been Christians, Christians have practiced specific spiritual things that we often call spiritual disciplines to help maintain order, to add intention to our lives because left to our own devices without intention we move towards chaos. We move towards, the spiritual word might be sin, because we know that sin is not just a list of things that God doesn't want us to do, but sin is defined as things that cause harm and bring destruction into the world. So without intention, we move towards harm and disorder. We move towards sin. There's also something in Deuteronomy 6 about this, this idea of entropy and what happens when we're left to our own devices. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a very important passage in the entire Old Testament. In fact, the first two verses that we read have become throughout the years one of the core and primary prayers of the people of Israel. Ancient Jews and people who practice Judaism in the modern world will pray this prayer, these two, two verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, multiple times a day as an orienting prayer, almost as a mantra, as a consistent and primary discipline in their lives. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This becomes a primary practice and prayer that really much of scripture is seen through this lens. The book of Deuteronomy is kind of like a, a, a summary or a retelling of the first four books of the Bible that was preparing the people of Israel for the new land they were about to inherit. We could think of the book of Deuteronomy as Moses' kind of last statements or his last, uh, his last teaching for the people of Israel before they went on to a new leader. And this becomes a primary and influential prayer. And in this prayer, in this passage, Moses is reminding them who God is and what his commands mean. He's encouraging them as they prepare for this new land to remain faithful to the God who has set them free from Egypt and to the commands and decrees that he gives them. In fact, this passage that we read comes right after a retelling of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you remember from a few months ago, we talked through the Ten Commandments and how they are the ethic. They're the moral foundation for the laws of the kingdom of God. So Moses is encouraging and challenging and orienting the people of Israel around the ethic that they've been given and compelling them, inviting them to remain faithful to this God who has given them freedom and who has called them. And then as they are faithful to the commands, he gives a promise and a warning. If you keep these commands, it will go well with you in the land. It's worth noting that this promise is more a result than a reward. A result is what happens when you do something. A reward is something in addition I give you because you do something. God promises that if you remain faithful to these commands, things will go well with you. He does not necessarily promise to do extra because they keep the commands. It's the result of keeping the commands that leads to the life that God has promised, the life that God's given. But there are two things. Before we can move on, there are two things I need to say about this promise. These are super important. It's kind of a sidebar from the sermon, but I need to give you two things about the promise. Sound good? 
All right, perfect. This is my first time preaching in a couple weeks, so I need a little bit of interaction. Sound good? Awesome, awesome. So the first thing about the command, about the promise, is that the promise is to y'all, not to you. It's to y'all, not to you. In other words, we in the Western world, especially in the United States, have a strong tendency to hear the word you, especially when we read it in promises of scripture and assume that it is singular, even though we know the word can be plural. So here's what that means. We read this and we assume that God is promising that if I as an individual keep God's commands, that my life will go well as an individual, that I will somehow avoid tragedy or avoid pain or accomplish my goals or realize my dreams. This command is to y'all not to you. For much of the world globally today, for much of human history, and certainly for the people that this was originally written to, their natural posture would not have been to assume this was an individual promise, but it was a corporate promise. God was saying to his people that if the people of God live in the commands of God, if they keep the ethic of the kingdom, that it will go well for the people. He's not promising a life that is individually void of tragedy. He's promising a life that is collectively marked by his goodness and his peace. The promise is to y'all, not to you. Here's the second thing. We've said this a lot at the fold, and if you're around the fold for a while, you're going to hear this more and more and more. Good and easy are not synonyms. God promises that it will go well for the people, but he does not promise that it will go easy. Good and easy are not synonyms. The good life God has promised us is not a life that is free of pain or free of tragedy. In fact, if you look throughout the story of scripture, what you find is that even though God's desire is never suffering, that we live in a world marked by sin, and suffering is a reality of the world that we live in. God, in no place in scripture, promises that a life of obedience to him removes us from suffering. In fact, he almost guarantees the opposite of that. He's not talking about a pain free life. He's talking about a life that is marked by peace and that is marked by purpose and that's marked by fulfillment. He's saying that as a people, as a community, if you keep my commands, then it will go well for you as you live in the purpose and peace and identity that I have called you to. Are we on the same page here? This is incredibly, incredibly important because things going well for you in life has much more to do with how you handle pain than it has to do with the amount of pain. One more time. Things going well in life has much more to do with how we are prepared to handle the pain and tragedy and suffering that is inevitable to the human experience than it is to the amount that we have. Good and easy are not synonyms. I tell my son over and over and over again, almost everything in life worth doing is hard. The life God has called us to is not necessarily an easy life, but he promises that it will go well with us because his desire is that things will go well if we keep his commands. Now with this promise, there's a warning. And the warning is that as things go well, as you inherit the land that I've promised to give you, it is going to become easy to forget the God who gave it to you. 
as things go better for you in life, you will face an increasing temptation to forget the God who gave you the things in the first place. As things trend in the direction of peace and purpose in life, it's going to be more and more tempting to forget the commands of the king and the God who gave the commands. Here's another way to say that. When we are desperate for God's intervention in our life, it is easier to prioritize God's commands in our lives. It is much easier to prioritize church and scripture and prayer and avoiding things that are obviously sin when I am desperate for God to intervene on my behalf. Why? Because my need for God is in front of my face all the time. It's part of my vision and my reality consistently. But as things go better and I am no longer as in tune with my need, it is much harder to prioritize the commands of God and the person of God in my life. This is a consistent struggle of being human. In other words, without intention, left to its own devices, our lives tend to move away from the order of God's kingdom and into chaos. Because the better things go, oftentimes the less intention is required, the less discipline is required, so the easier it is for us to slip into disorder. Are we on the same page? Do you see this? Now, in a lot of the Christian world right now, we would respond to this issue In fact, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard somebody say, it's easy to go to church when you need a miracle, that kind of stuff. Heard those sort of phrases. And a lot of times the way we respond to this truth is to say things like, you have to stay desperate. You've got to stay desperate for God's presence. You've got to find a way to foster that need. You've got to find a way to make sure that you're aware and connected to your need of God and to foster that desperation for his presence in your life. You can't become disconnected and we'll say things like, you can't become arrogant. You've got to maintain humility. And there's, there's certainly truth in that because any relationship that is to be healthy needs intentional fostering of intimacy and passion. We need to do things that are going to help stoke emotion in our lives. But I have a hard time seeing a correlation between a God who wants things to go well for us and feeling desperate all the time. I personally do not believe that God makes things hard for us so that we know our need for him. I want to say that one more time. I do not believe that God is consistently and intentionally making life hard so that we know our need of him. To me, that is not consistent with the character of God as revealed in scripture. That's more consistent with the character of like a toxic ex-boyfriend. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. God desires things to go well for us. But as things go well, there is a temptation to forget. So the answer that God gives us is not to live a life of desperation, but is to impress his commands upon your heart, to talk about them in your going out and in your coming in, to impress them on your children, 
to write them on your doorpost and on your gates, to bind them on your hands so that everything you touch is marked by his word, and to bind them on your forehead so that everything you see and everyone who sees you is seen through the lens of his word. God's answer to this consistent temptation that we will face to let our lives slide into disorder is an intentional, practiced priority of God's word with his people. Do you see this in the story? Do you see that God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep these commands in your heart. His answer to the temptation that we will constantly face is a consistent, regular prioritization of his word with his people. This, I believe, is the foundational idea that would lead the people of Israel to practice gathering in synagogues where they hear the word of God read and taught and they worship together. This is the practice that led the early Christians to continue. This is the, the idea that led the early Christians, just as we're doing today, to gather in churches, to hear the word of God taught, to read the word together, to process scripture together, because prioritization, rhythm creates formation. You remember spiritual disciplines are physical actions that create space for inner transformation. Regularly gathering with the people of God puts the word of God in priority in our lives so that we are not moving towards chaos. Make sense? Are you following? Regular priority, regularly prioritizing God's word with his people is the foundational rhythm that keeps us oriented around his commands. This is why scripture is a corporate discipline and not just an individual discipline. This is why my faith is not founded on only my personal reading of scripture on my own. This is why followers of Jesus are not people who have a personal ethic based on scripture but are not connected to a community. This is why the people of God have always been a community with regular practices and gatherings that are organized around scripture because our lives without intention, without intervention, move towards disorder, but with regular practice, we are aligned with God's word and kept in his commands. Now, there's one more thing that I want to say. I think that one of the things that limits our ability to be formed by the word of God consistently is that many of us go to God's word wanting it to be an instruction manual. We go to God's word wanting it to have clear, easy to follow instructions for whatever situation we find ourselves in life. We want it to be like the picture guidebook in a Lego kit, right? Like life, life is the Legos, the Bible is the pictures, and if I follow the pictures in order, I can put it together. Unfortunately, that is not scripture. That, that's not what it is. The scripture is complicated. The ethics of the kingdom of God are nuanced. Obedience to the commands of God is often complicated by the situations we find ourselves in life. So we are not formed 
into people who keep the commands of God by simple memorization and obedience. We are formed into people who keep and obey the commands of the kingdom by discussing, by wrestling, by bringing our doubts and our questions and our concerns to scripture and and discerning them and wrestling through the lens of scripture by making scripture part of our conversation in our going out and in our coming in when we're walking on the road, when we're at home, when we're lying down and when we're getting up by impressing it on our children. Do you see it's not a memorization and application, it's discussion and conversation and prioritization. Scripture can handle your doubts, scripture can handle, scripture can handle your questions. You do not have to have it fully understood and figured out to be formed by it because we are formed in prioritizing and discussing this word. So we do not come to simply learn and then obey. We come to have our hearts aligned with scripture. Listen, obedience is obviously a repercussion of a command. We are meant to obey scripture, but scripture is not always clear and concise and easy to understand. We are meant to wrestle and question and be formed by it. That is how scripture changes every area of our life. That is how scripture becomes something that's bound to our hands and to our foreheads so that everything we touch is marked by scripture and everything we see and everyone who sees us is seen through the lens of scripture. This is how scripture becomes something that we never fully have a handle on. This is why we can spend our whole lives studying and listening and wrestling with this word and still come with more to study and wrestle and learn and more to be formed. Scripture says about itself that it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide bone from marrow and soul from spirit. This word is meant to be wrestled with and discussed. It's meant to mark our lives, not as a platitude or a cliche to make us feel better when times are down, but as a foundational ethic and truth that defines our lives and changes our interactions and forms the boundaries of our lives. That's what scripture is. I wish I could give you a simple, easy application of how to do that, but you might see that that would kind of counteract everything that I just said. The discipline of scripture as a community is to prioritize gathering with your community, to study scripture, to discuss, ask questions, and learn scripture. And in the intentional practice, we are formed because the Holy Spirit meets us through the word of God. This is why we don't just have Sunday mornings. This is why we have fold groups. This is why our fold groups discuss scripture. They don't read through a book or just ask questions about life. This is why we study scripture together. Because we are formed as we prioritize this word as a regular and consistent part of our lives. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you have given us a word that forms and shapes us. We thank you that we have, you have given us truth that is not exhaustible. God, I ask that, that I would be a person who continually comes to your word to be formed and that I would meet you 
in your word, that we would be people who prioritize your word and are formed by your word. And that your word would be the lens that we see the world through and the lens that the world sees us through. We love you, Jesus. Amen.